football season's begun, which means it's time to be entertained by world-class athletes performing miraculous feats of physical strength and skill. And then watch them as they creatively celebrate so that you can be sure that you saw what they did. Uh, the post-play celebration is, uh, is, is, is developed into this entire thing. Uh, in, in particular, I saw recently a, a picture that I thought was an apt metaphor for the whole process that takes place after somebody scores. This particular college athlete scored his touchdown and, uh, and of course, did the obligatory look at me. And then I realized he was metaphorically perfectly wearing number one because, you, you know, when you're trying to make sure that you are the center of attention, you are effectively saying, I'm number one. And he was number one. I mean, his jersey number is number one. He, he won the game. He's number one. I, I find it amazing uh, because in my lifetime, it, it has changed, at least in athletics, where uh, there was a discouragement that was given when I was younger if you tried to single yourself out above your teammates. Um, that has definitely changed with the tide of our country. We've always been kind of a rugged, individualist, proud country. People are very happy to celebrate when they're successful uh, we actually honor people who, who do great things. They, they built their own fortune. They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. The rugged individualist is as American as apple pie. Uh, we have always celebrated the individual, but in professional sports, it's taken on a whole life of its own uh, and, and really become increasingly about the branding of an individual athlete. Now, that has something to do with money, and it, but it most certainly affects the dynamics of whatever team it is they're going to be a part of. And you don't have to go far outside of Los Angeles to see the, the dynamics of that happening. Uh, at the professional level, we have a family here in the greater Los Angeles area who has a lot of great basketball players, and their dad has made sure to make sure that we all know that, and they're building their own baller brand, the ball family, and, and, and it's to make more money. Uh, because this exists at the professional sports level, where an individual has now turned himself into his own company, marketing his own stuff, um, it has changed the way that people work together on a team. And then it's also bled its way down into the college and high school ranks, because now, in order to get picked and seen as special, you have to differentiate yourself from the mob, and so that would, that would require you to... Um, make sure everybody knows your number and make sure you do the Superman stance after you score or whatever it is that you've got to do to draw attention to yourself. And social media hasn't been helpful in that regard either. Uh, young athletes are now quickly placing their highlights and their individual snippets of greatness on the world so that colleges can see it. And then colleges put their athletes out there so that professionals can see it and and lost in all of this is the beauty of being a part of a team. It, it may go without saying, and it seems like the most basic of Christian doctrines, but the church has been called to something very different. An individual, whether they are an industrialist or an athlete or an actor, has been called to make one person a superstar. As a local entity, as a church, PRISM has but one celebrity and it isn't the broken human being standing before you now speaking. Our entire purpose for existing is to exalt Jesus, that people would see Jesus in everything that we do. 
And when they don't see Jesus, when they are distracted by, Lord forbid, the pastor or anyone else, this is not a good thing because our goal is that they would see Jesus. We exist to shine the light of the glory of God in Christ to L.A. San, LA San Gabriel Valley and the world. Our mission is to revive believers, reach friends, and renew culture for the glory of Jesus. See, it's, it's His glory that matters. It mattered to Him, too, uh, when He was giving His high priestly prayer just before He went to the cross. He spoke this. I do not ask, as he spoke to his father, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. They may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Laced throughout this, I, this prayer is that people would see in and through us the glory of God. And together, today, we begin a discovery. It's a three-month process. And I refer you to the front of your bulletin at this stage of the game. This is one of those days where it's a lucky Sunday. I'm actually giving you permission to read through your bulletin during the sermon, like you needed my permission anyway. I mean, some of you have become really good at memorizing the contents of the bulletin. I know as a kid, I love drawing on my bulletin. Um, but I would say that today, there's some important information about what we're actually up to for the next three months. Brooks and I had mentioned that we had been planning our fall for months before Brooks uh, really sensed that it was time for him to get married and move to Tennessee. So we were amazed to watch how uh, the timing of, of this series has coincided with our church's opportunity to say, where am I supposed to be using my gifts? This discovery is us individually figuring out how God has gifted us, but then also seeing how he has arranged the parts of this specific body of believers, the body of Christ at Prism Church. As part of this process, there is an online tool that will help you uh, assess your gifts, what they are in relationship to the list of gifts provided in 1 Corinthians. The web page, uh, the web address is right here, or you can go to the front of the Prism Church site and scroll down to the bottom right and you'll see the words gift assessment you click on that, it'll take you right there. This gift assessment, they'll ask for your email. It will go to you only. Um, we won't get it unless you share it with us. And we hope that we can share it with each other, that everybody will share the, uh, the, the byproducts of that exam. But more than that, this fall, because I participated in churches, I pastored churches where we all got excited and took gift tests and all that, and then it kind of sort of went nowhere. Um, it just so happens that this time around, uh, we have a somewhere for it all to go. And so you'll see in the bulletin that there are seven gift teams that we are, have planned to initiate here this fall. And perhaps in assessing your gifts and calling and desires, you would say, I, I'm really interested in plugging in and doing more. And as we talk about gifts this month, um, you may say, you know, I'm ready to take a step into actually using the talents God's given me for His glory 
and, and for the building up of his church. And so all of those luncheon dates and the descriptions of those teams that you'd be invited to be a part of are, are right here in your bulletin. If you have any other questions about that types of things, you can uh, ask me anytime. And, and as part of this entire fall experience, once we get through this month's four-part series on gifts, we're also going to spend October and November um, discussing and looking at 1 Corinthians in depth about the, the various fault lines that exist in churches that can create division. The church at Corinth in the New Testament was famous or infamous for stumbling all over themselves. And really, in the 2,000 years since, there hasn't been a new methodology of church division invented. And so what we're going to do is peer deeply into that letter to them to say what are going to be potential pitfalls for us. What are places, fault lines, if you will, where division could take place in our church. This entire fall is about moving us from theory to practice. I've had folks ask, are we going to replace Brooks? And the, the short answer to that question is yes, with you. In some ways, we're going to have someone like Joe Chai, who's now going to part-time in our church, lead our family in worship every Sunday with his team. But there are pastoral care teams and other teams that are involved, things that Brooks was doing, media and arts. And there are places it would be easy as a church to say, let's go just find somebody and hire them. And, and what we believe, though, is at this transition stage in our church life, it's critical for many of you to step into roles of leadership that maybe previously you've not felt like it was okay for you to. And now we're telling you, if you don't do it, um, nobody's going to. And this is the natural and good and healthy thing for a church. We begin today with a look at glory. If you're looking as to where we're going on the very back of your bulletin, the four parts of our series this month are listed out in these four words, acrimoniously set, glory, initiative, fullness, and team. Today we talk about God's glory as the primary purpose for why he has given us gifts. And from our text today, I'd like to just extrapolate out two points that would help you see why God has designed, why he has orchestrated his body this way. First of two thoughts is this from our text in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 16, and that is God's body displays glory. And so let me read it here from verses 14 through 16. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. These questions confused me for a while. And when I look at these texts, there were seasons in my life where I thought, who walks around and says, um, I'm not an eye, so I don't belong to the body. Or uh, what, What's effectively going on in Corinth is a division taking place in their church based on who thought who was really important. Certain parts of the body of this believers were being divided by, I have a really important role in the church and you have a fairly insignificant role. But what the language is communicating here is the person is saying, I feel badly about who I am. I don't have very good gifts. I am not an eye. You know, I'm a foot. 
Most of us have our feet right now uh, covered in a sock, buried in a shoe. And yet I can see every one of your eyes. Eyes are visible and prominent. And so people think, I'm not prominent. I I, I don't have anything to offer that would make me seemingly super useful to the body. And yet at the same time, even if you make that assessment that you are a metaphorical foot, it does not make you not part of the body. Just because you don't feel like you're part of the body because you're not an eye, you don't cease to be part of the body. It just means that there's a different place for you. You might think, well, that's easy for you to say, Chuck, you're the lead pastor in our church. But on a micro scale, yeah, I may have a leadership role, but on a macro scale, it is a fairly regular conversation with me and my friends that I really am an unknown quantity amongst my peers. My buddy Len Tang is here. He's the pastor of Missio Church, and he's had to listen to me over coffee on a number of occasions say, you know, I'm really happy to be the pastor of our church, but when I go to conferences or I go places around the world and I look at these significant people doing significant things for the body of Christ, they're players. And I think about me, I, I ask, man, I, I don't really, who am I? I mean, I have nothing to contribute comparatively. Uh, and so you may sense, well, that, you know, I feel like that here. Well, let me tell you a little bit about my struggle. I, I am forced then to say, God, for whatever reason, has said, I'm not going to make you this way. You're, you're not going to be Tim Keller. You're not going to be Ravi Zacharias. You're not going to be one of these best-selling authors or these incredible communicators of God's truth. You're, you're who I made you to be, so you need to rejoice in that and be who I made you to be. This is the, the conversation that I have with God when I start saying things like, you know, because I'm not an I and visible to the global church, I must not be much. Instead, God says, you know what? I made you exactly who I want you to be for exactly what I want you to do. So we're all in this together. You may feel like, you know, I'm not a singer. I don't write songs like Joe and the worship team. (laughs) I can't draw either. We have this art night coming up, and I don't even really do hangman very neatly, you know? So I've got zero artistic skills, and I'm surrounded by people with all this talent And so you might feel the same way. You might feel that some role in our church, because of your societal influences or because of your own perceptions, that is what you have to have. And and for some of us, that's a real frustrating point because we go, I'm not made for that. Or people are telling me I'm not made for that. There's nothing more disappointing for somebody who thinks they're a great singer to be told by the worship pastor, you may have great gifts other places, But you can't sing on key, and that will disable our people from keeping their eyes on Jesus during singing. Now, if, you know, I could not speak publicly, it would probably follow that I wouldn't be your every week communicator of God's truth. We all have different skill sets. We all have different things to be the body. And this is what this is saying. God's body is what displays his glory. God has intentionally created a body that is diverse in its gifts, in its ethnicity, in its complexity, because all of these things honor and point to him as creator. Perhaps you've felt less than others in the body, and God is saying, no, you represent one aspect of who I am. This reflection of him takes place at the collective level. 
all of us having one aspect, one gift, one character trait, all of these things, when collected together, provide a tapestry of God's majesty for others to see. As an individual, you and I have uh, the ability to point to aspects of God's character, but the body of Christ is how the panorama of God's attributes are seen. No one person or ethnic group has a corner on demonstrating the character traits of God. Quite literally, the church of Jesus is a prism. Now, that may seem metaphorically convenient for me to bring that up. Yesterday, I was doing a wedding. A man who was the U.S. ambassador to China got married here in our chapel to another lady. Um, They're an elderly couple, and it was actually a really beautiful ceremony that I got to preside over. And as I visited with him beforehand, I was explaining to him that churches in L.A., and our hope for our church is that it would not be monocultural. And, and he said to me, well, that's why you call yourself prism. And, and he got that right. It's one of the byproducts of having a cool metaphor for your church name. As the light of the gospel of Jesus, as Jesus shines through our church, there, there is a, a manifestation of his glory through different peoples and certainly different gifts. Quite literally, this is what the church globally looks like. And we see that in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, where the apostle John sees eternity and says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne." And to the Lamb. John Piper expresses his love for diversity this way More depth of beauty is felt from a choir that sings in parts than from a choir that sings only in unison. Unity and diversity is more beautiful and more powerful than the unity of uniformity. This carries over to the untold differences that exist between the peoples of the world. When their diversity unites in worship to God, the beauty of their praise will echo the depth and greatness of God's beauty far more than if the redeemed were from only a few different people groups. I was here early this morning and the, the worship team was practicing. And I came in and it was so beautiful to listen to Joe and Melissa and Tommy sing in a three-part music. It, it sounded heavenly. It was, it, was, it was just so beautiful. And I came and I told them, thank you. It, it's a great way to start your Sunday morning. We, we get to see that. And that is supposed to glorify God. It's not supposed to make us go, wow, those three can sing together. It's supposed to be about, wow, the beauty and majesty of these things is supposed to elevate our thought to see Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul would have written to the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to, all, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
We are called the body of Christ when we are collectively doing what it is that God's called us to do. People see the incarnation of Christ in our generation. This is how, this is one of the ways the world sees us. Jesus said in John 13, this is how they're going to know you're my disciples, if you love one another. The apostle would write to the Corinthians, this is another way that they're going to know that you're my disciples. When you all are operating in the place of giftedness that the Lord has given you, when He has enabled you to recognize what those gifts are. And then you find that place of service to others. Others sense God's care for them. You sense that you're needed. And that shows you God as well. And then collectively, people see a church that's actually caring for and loving each other. And God is glorified. God's body displays His glory Here's a second thought for you from our passage today, and that is this. God's design promotes his glory. Let me explain that. Verses 18 through 21 say, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So now the posture has changed. The ones in power, head and, and, uh, and eye, are, are, are being told, you can't have the perspective that you don't need the feet and the hands just because they're not on top. The, the, now the apostle is challenging those who actually have leadership roles, that God has arranged this. This is God's doing. That what you have is from him. He chose to do this. He providentially set this up. No one individual member is more important than the others. We are a body. The intention of God was that the church would not be run by a single person or dependent on a single person because the temptation to human pride would be too great for any one person to bear up under. We're we're told in Scripture that a plurality of elders oversees a local church. We're told that the body is made up of diverse parts, equal in their importance in the body, regardless of whether or not they're visible or not. And yet so many would try to rob God of His glory by virtue of what they have been given as an act to serve others. Professional football players with fame and fortune who get carried away with being celebrated are only human and no different than me. And if we could sit down and talk, I might be able to persuade you no different than you. It's what we would all do if we were proverbially in their cleats. We would try to take that which is a gift to us, and turn it into something that is being used to celebrate us instead of our Creator, who gave us these things, who gave us this ability. Matt Chandler, who is successful by just about any measure, the pastor of the Village Church, the president of the Acts 29 Network, I think the Village Church is closing in on uh, five figures, 10,000 people in their church these days. He's an author of multiple books, He would say this, quote, 
the, the idolatry that exists in a man's heart always wants to lead him away from his Savior and back to self-reliance, no matter how pitiful that self-reliance is or how many times it has betrayed him. This is the heart of a broken human condition. This is our first parents, Adam and Eve's big sin. They did not want to defer to God, to recognize they've been created by their creator. They wanted to be worshipped themselves. They wanted to be like God. This is, in, this is at the heart of our, our every problem, which is that God has given us great gifts, but he's designed his body to promote his glory. He's not given one person all of the tools. He spread those around so that no one would ever be tempted to think that they're so important that they can't do it without me. Brooks and I used to comment that there were times, and there have been times, where I've said the following, and I, and I say this to my shame, which is a phrase that Brooks loved to say. Uh, I say this to my shame. I would say, without me, they just can't do that. And I think to myself, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And anytime you get close to echoing those words, you're in some dangerous, idolatrous territory. You leave a job and you go, it just won't be the same without me. Those people could never do it without me. We are moving into some turf there where we're starting to say in our own way, I want to be God. I want to just be so indispensably necessary that people will even feel pain when I'm not here. I hope they feel the loss of my presence. The bitterness that might rise up in your heart when you think about relationships that have gone sour, much of that is contained deep in those places. You want to be the peace that people need more than God. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul ties this to what Jesus has done for us. He says, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What he is saying to these people is God gets the glory for what he's done in our lives. And this is good for God, and this is good for us too. The connection point for us is that if we ever get to a place where we would think my relationship with God, my status with God, his acceptance of me is tied to my obedience, my performance, how holy or how unholy I am, how useful or how unuseful I am. What happens is on moments where you perceive or I would foolishly perceive in my mind that I'm doing well spiritually, I'm being used a lot and I haven't made the same mistakes I used to make a lot of time ago. Those are like brief moments in the history of our progress as Christians. Most of the time we're dealing with, oh, I've got to go back to God again and say, I'm sorry, <laughs> blew it again. Uh, you know, this is the journey of the Christian. It's, it's one of continuous repentance because we recognize we can't do it on our own. That posture provides you peace because it isn't in any way contingent upon how well you're doing as a believer. Peace comes to you when you divorce yourself from the equation, if you will, of how you can be at rest with God. 
in Paul's declaration, he says, to him be glory forever and ever. It was Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. See, once again, Jesus is what we need. Peace is found there in our humility, really in our weakness and giving honor to the perceived weak parts of the body. This is what Paul is talking about in, in 1 Corinthians 12, that there are these parts of the body that culture might deem weak, but we in the church give special places of honor to them. And by saying this, the Lord is, through Paul, reemphasizing a great spiritual truth that runs throughout the Scripture, that when we are weak, when we are, when we are low, He is strong and He is lifted high. This is the testimony from Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 when he said he was going to boast in his weakness. It was what Jesus told his disciples in John 15 when he said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. J.I. Packer is a Protestant theologian who is closing in on spending eternity with God. He's an older gentleman, and he's lost his eyesight, and he's coming, I think, to his final lap or two. But his final book was called Weakness is the Way. And in it, he said the following, quote, The way of true spiritual strength leading to real fruitfulness in the Christian life and service is the humble, self-distrustful way of consciously recognized weakness in spiritual things. You want to produce fruit for the kingdom? It's going to come by you humbling yourself. The fruit of an orange tree only comes after somebody decides to get in the dirt. This is where it starts. It starts with our humility, and he causes it to grow for his exaltation. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. This is a frightening thing for most of us because we like being great. We want to be exalted. We want others to see us. We, that's why we go into the end zones of our life and beat our chest and say, look at me. Because we want others to worship us. And God says, if you want to produce really vast basketfuls of fruit for me, it starts with you finding a humble place of service. And that humble service comes with the requirement that you do so in brokenness. That you humbly Walk your way through serving others. Yesterday at the Coliseum, USC played Western Michigan University, and it was awfully hot yesterday, and I can't imagine what it would have been like to be on that field. USC didn't look good in the first half. They didn't look good the whole game except for one play. <laughs> and it was the play where a young man, a senior at USC, a long snapper named Jake Olson was brought out to hike the ball for an extra point. Here's the thing. Jake Olson is blind. If you get a chance to see the video today, you, you should see it. His family, very thrilled. 
Olson was born with a retinoblastoma. It's a form of eye cancer, and he lost his left eye when he was 10 months old. At age 12 in 2009, he learned he needed surgery to remove his right eye, which completely cost him his vision. And over the years, he was a huge USC fan. The night before his surgery, the last thing he wanted to see was a USC football practice. Years later, when he came to USC as a student, the athletic director, Pat Hayden, encouraged him to walk onto the football team because he'd done snapping, long snapping in high school. His coach, Clay Helton, yesterday coordinated with the Western Michigan coaches when the game was out of reach and made sure that they knew that this young man was coming in. And he snapped the ball. The kick was good. The snap was great. This team celebrated. The crowd celebrated. The other team, Western Michigan, celebrated. It was a really beautiful thing. You know what he said afterwards? He said, I'm just glad to be a part of this team. You know, that was what it was about for him. I mean, it wasn't a moment of individual glory. He was just so jazzed his whole life. He dreamed about being a USC Trojan. He is a letterman. He's going to be in the annals of USC Trojan history. It's an amazing thing. And I was most amazed that this guy wasn't beating his chest. He was just like, I'm so thankful to all the people who've made this possible for me. I'm so thankful for my parents, my family, my coaches, my teammates. It's a brotherhood. I'm so glad to be a part of all that. This, this is, I'm so proud to be a part of this. And this is really what the body of Christ is supposed to be. It's a, a collective, a team of people where we're all excited for even the, the person who appears to be weakest. And then ironically, in the culture of college sports, Physically, he might be the weakest, but his attitude and his heart is by far the strongest of most of the athletes. So on one hand, we see him as weak, but he's actually strong. And his teammates to come around him and say, we celebrate you. We celebrate what you've done. You're one of us. This is supposed to be the encouragement that we take away from being part of of God's body. This is about the glory of being a part of God's team. This is about the joy of being one of Jesus' servants. Regardless of what my role is, I get to be part of the team of Jesus. I get to make much of him. And if you've got a, if you're a quarterback and, and I'm a kicker, I mean, and, and in my experience, kickers haven't historically been loved by everybody on the team. But in my world, in your world, in our church world, it doesn't matter what our role is. We're to encourage each other, build each other's up, because we're trying to bring glory to God. His body is designed to promote His glory. His body displays it for all to see. So I'd invite you to join with me not only in praying that he would be glorified, but this fall to take advantage of the opportunity we have as a church to really investigate where he, would, where he has gifted you and where he specifically would be calling you to experience him by serving others. Let's pray to that end, shall we?